You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Well, hello. Today is Thursday, January 26, 2023, and I'm very excited to have this panel uh, discussing Karen Vaughan's uh, book, Essays on Austrian Economics and Political Economy. Uh, this is a collection of Karen's uh, best writings over uh, from articles over her career, and we are thrilled that we were able to uh, bring this book out, and I'm very excited to have this panel with us today. Um, before we get started with the panel, I just want to say that uh, Karen Vaughn is a professor emeritus, emerita from George Mason University. Uh, she was the department uh, chairman at George Mason University uh, when the department built itself into a uh, research program uh, that eventually, you know, labeled it an R1 university, uh, able to have uh, Nobel Prize winners and uh, distinguished fellows uh, of the American Economic Association walk its halls. Um, and Karen was vital in building that program and creating what we have here um, and the 40 years of our uh, center here uh, is due to Karen as well. And so we owe her all uh, a debt of gratitude for what she did um, here. And so it's, it, you know, we're just thrilled. Uh, she's also a senior fellow in our uh, Hayek program, uh, distinguished senior fellow in our, in our Hayek program here. Um, so Karen will have a chance to talk about her book and, and, and whatnot. And then we'll hear from my colleague, uh, Dr. Jamie Lemke, who's a senior research uh, fellow uh, in the F.A. Hayek program. Um, and so Jamie will have a chance to talk first. Then we'll hear from Professor Bruce Caldwell from Duke University and the director of the Center for History of Political Economy um, and the editor of the Collected Works of Hayek. And now also the biography on, on Hayek um, that's published by University of Chicago. And then finally, uh, from Professor Victor Vanberg, um, who's a, a professor emeritus uh, from uh, Freiburg, but also was a professor at George Mason University during the, the pivotal time uh, that I was talking about with, with Karen building the program up. And Victor played a major role in that as well. Um, and, uh, and, 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 the, and the presence of, of, of political economy from a constitutional perspective um, that that uh, has still uh, been a major influence in the way that we in the Hayek program pursue our uh, approach to political economy. So uh, without any further interruptions from me, I turn the floor over to Karen, but I want to thank everyone for taking the time to do this. I think this is just a great panel. So Karen. A couple of years ago, I gave a series of interviews, one with Bruce for the History of Economic Society, two with Pete, um, a pot for, <clears throat> on uh, my career, with one with Jamie, and with IHS, and uh, with Mercatus. And it started me reflecting, you know, reflection actually comes naturally as you get older. And, and I started thinking about my career. And I thought maybe I realized I could tell a coherent story about 
my ideas if I put all these essays together. Um, a word about my writing. I was and I am a puzzler. I rarely know what I think about something until I actually start writing about it. Uh, I usually start with a question and then I try to work out how to answer that question. And I suppose you've noted that a lot of my essays on Austrian economics begin with something Kersner said because he would say something so clearly that it, it allowed me to start thinking about it. Often I didn't agree with him, but it helped me so, so much in puzzling out what I thought about issues. Another reason was that I was not as focused on my publishing uh, strategy as I should have been. And I often published in offbeat places. And um, I had hoped that gathering these essays in one convenient and well-priced volume would get them read. I guess a little bit of an ego trip here. I didn't want to be forgotten and I wanted to have these available for people to read. Now, in the, you, in the introduction, I wrote pretty much exclusively about the essays on Austrian economics. When I was choosing these essays, that was the issue that was most in the forefront of my mind. I think I also believe that I contributed more to Austrian economics than I did to political economy. Um, but what I want to do here is show the connection between the two, because that's something I didn't do in the, in the introduction. <clears throat> now, as you know from reading, the Kirsner-Lachman debates of the 80s and early 90s really captured my imagination. But I wasn't alone in that. That was a big issue discussed at George Mason University, at least in the, among the Austrians. Uh, it was a big deal in the 80s, and it was... <clears throat> It dominated a lot of our, our thinking. Now, I'm going to call attention to a little paper that Pete wrote with uh, Steve Horowitz and Dave Prochitko in 1986 that was in Market Processes. And that paper was he called was called Beyond Equilibrium Economics. And they were they were graduate students at the time, but they were adding their two cents to the debate about the role of equilibrium in, um, in economic explanation. And of course, their view was that evolutionary theory rather than equilibrium theory was the appropriate metaphor for economics. Now, this excited me. And I had been thinking about evolutionary theory. I was always interested in biological evolution. And the whole notion of an ongoing market process seemed to me to be just right for some kind of use of or application of evolutionary theory. But I was thinking about it in a non-systematic way. I was it was just something I kept in the back of my mind, and um, while I did my other stuff, I read I read more in, in the um, evolutionary literature, but I didn't. It wasn't a, a general focus of my understanding of economics. That came through an unusual path. And that I have to, again, correct what I think it was an omission in my introduction. And that is the importance of Jim Buchanan. Now, I first came to Buchanan's attention through my work on John Locke. I wrote my dissertation on John Locke's economic and social theory, political theories. 
And I, I presented a paper at a Liberty Fund conference on Locke's labor theory of value. Well, apparently Dick Wagner uh, noticed that, that paper and decided that I'd be a good candidate to talk at the colloquium at the Public Choice Center. So I guess it was in January that year, I went down to Blacksburg and gave my talk and got to know Jim a little bit and got to know the people at the Public Choice Center. And that bore fruit more than I can, could ever have imagined because then I started to get invited every summer to the public choice, uh, not public choice, to the Liberty Fund conferences that Jim put together in Blacksburg. The topics there were far ranging, but at base, the core of almost all of them was something about classical liberal theory and about how, what um, the appropriate rules of the social order. And they were introduced me to political themes that I just hadn't thought about very much before, except basically libertarianism is good, you know. I, I was introduced not only to Buchanan's work, but also to Hayek's work at, at those conferences. I knew Hayek's economic essays, but I really didn't know his work on political and social theory. It started me reading Hayek, but again, I didn't sit down and focus. What should I, you know, what, how can I use this? That came about soon after Jim had signed the, the Memorandum of Understanding to come to George Mason University. It turns out the Mont Pelerin Society uh, sponsored an essay contest for young scholars. And apparently at my age, I just barely made it under the wire for a young scholar. And, and the topic was, can democratic societies reform themselves? The worry, of course, was the, the post World War II West, that we were going way, we were going too far down the road to serfdom. Could we change directions on the road to serfdom? Now, Buchanan encouraged me to enter that contest. I wouldn't have done it on my own. Actually, it was more like he insisted I enter that con that contest. And, <clears throat> and that really opened up my, my understanding of Hayek as well as Buchanan. Now, if Buchanan, if, if you read the essay, realize, realize, you realize that Buchanan was very critical of Hayek. He thought that Hayek was, was preaching a council of despair, was the way he put it. That if we think we are powerless in the face of grand evolutionary forces, then we just give up. You know, we just go plow our fields or play poker or something like that because there's no point to what we do. Now, I thought he was wrong about that, but I had to figure out why I thought he was wrong about that. So what I did in that essay was I tried to work Buchanan's constitutionalism into a larger fabric of, uh, of social evolution. I thought on the, on, on the um, issue of how attitudes and institutions and, and governments evolve, I thought as, as a descriptive theory, I thought Hayek was absolutely right. But Jim had a point too. And what I, what I, had, what I thought I needed to show was that in every, any kind of social evolution, there's human agency, somebody, is introducing an idea or somebody is trying to get others to agree with them. 
So that's when I started talking about the political entrepreneur. This essay didn't really fit into anything else I had written. And by then I was department chairman and I didn't even think about publishing it. You know, it was just, I mean, I won first prize. I was very happy about that. And a lot of people, and I got, in, I got to become a member of Montpelerin. I was also happy about that, but it really wasn't anything that I focused on as, as a, a research program. It was mostly beneficial, I thought, because it, it really caused me to delve big time into Hayek. And after that, I read everything. Um, you know, all of his essays that I could get my hands on. And it fed into my understanding of Austrian economics in a way it hadn't be, that I hadn't thought about it before. Uh, you'll note that in the section on political economy, all three of the four essays are about Hayek. Each one of them was something that I didn't plan to write, but just the opportunity presented itself. Uh, the second one, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was for um, a volume on the road to serfdom after 40 years. And, it, and that's where I basically reiterated some of my arguments about uh, the, the importance of, of having a voice in the... Uh, in the evolutionary process. The third essay was an anomaly. Homo economicus, Pete always likes this essay, but I wrote it at a, a sort of a fit of pique because I got tired of hearing my public choice colleagues attribute venal attitudes to everybody in, in, in government. And I wanted to argue that <clears throat> while people as John Locke would have said, are often biased in their own interests. They all they have not only interests, but they've got they've got cultural attitudes, they've got moral attitudes, and even if if they advocate for a policy that may in fact benefit themselves financially, that might not be the primary um, might not be the primary motivation. Now, of course, the comeback to that is, well, it doesn't matter what the motivation is. We can, you know, it, it's, it's parsimonious to use the homo economicus construct. And, and it generally gives you the right answers. But still, I think at that time, it, I was starting to think about, we have to bring more into our understanding of human action. And that's something I thought Austrians were particularly sensitive to. And of course, if you look at what Austrians are writing now, there's a lot of that in there. The last article in that section was one, again, I only wrote because I got an invitation to write for um, a volume that was in, aimed at uh, business ethicists. It was meant for a business um, school audience. And they wanted to know what how Hayek could defend the market order, you know, how would an ethicist think about that? And that was an intriguing proposition because I think so much of what we do, we write for, for people in our own little bailiwick. We write for people who already agree, but primarily with a lot of what we say. But this was going to be for business uh, school professors and uh, scholars who didn't, you know, 
probably, if they heard of Hayek, just thought he was some kind of right-wing nut. So you've probably noticed that pretty much all the articles will start with the calculation debate. And as I've told you many times before, the, the uh, calculation debate was what organized my thinking for the very first time about the difference between neoclassical and, and Austrian economics. Uh, and But it's also important to explain to other people the limitations of what governments can achieve. And that's what I was trying to do in that defense of the market. But it, I realized that so much of the, the so-called economic defense of the market is based on welfare economics. And of course, uh, I think that's a pretty lousy defense myself because welfare economics uh, serves primarily to show all the problems with markets and how they can be corrected. Um, so at welfare economics is a pretty poor defense. Um, this led me to, by the way, I to, to circle back a little bit. I wrote that paper on Kersner's, um, should there be a, an Austrian welfare economics? And Kersner's idea was that welfare economics had to, had to, correspond to the tenets of Austrian economics. It had to be individualist and, not in, and it has to be an individualist uh, argument. And I realized that is not Hayek's argument at all. It's not individualist. What he sees is that one place I put it was like buying a lottery ticket to, to the kind of society you wanted to be in. And which society would any one person have the best chance of doing the best for himself or, or uh, and for his family. And you, since you don't know where you are, you, you could be any place. If you were to do this, most people would buy the lottery ticket to live in a, in a free market economy. And then, uh, and then the, the, the test of this is which way the migration patterns flow. People don't clamor to get into, they didn't clamor to get into the Soviet Union, they clamored to get away from it. So in a way, it relies on, on purposeful human beings who could, in principle, choose to be in a society that might not benefit them immediately, but would give them the best chance. Now, it's actually, I like that paper. That's what appears writing it, but I liked it. I don't know anybody's ever read it, so I'm really glad I was able to public, put it in this volume. I wanted to then sort of wrap this up somehow by addressing another question. Why study the history of economic thought? Now you, you noted that that was one of the uh, speech, the presidential addresses I gave had that title to the History of Economic Society. And when I was an undergraduate, I studied as much, well, probably as much history of economic thought as I studied theory. When I was president of the HES and I had to make this, this speech, it made me think, now why, why did I care about it? Why is it important? Why should we argue that students learn the history of economic thought? And I realized that the history of thought is just one more application of a kind of evolutionary theory. It's the evolution of ideas. 
And what you know, learn about evolution is that it's not a linear path upward and onward to greater truth. There are lots of mistakes. There are byways. There are paths. There are ideas that get forgotten. There are ideas that should have gotten forgot, been forgotten but weren't uh, quickly enough. And I think by studying the history of economic thought like that, it made it easier for me to look at an offbeat paradigm made it easier for me to 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 ruminate over something that other uh, economists thought was just passe and um, not worth their attention. Because it seems to me, it seemed to me that after all, we saw many instances in the history of economic thought where ideas that were fads or sounded like they were absolutely true turned out to be not, you know, not helpful at all. Uh, so um, my work on Manger started to convince me, and then that was the case with the Austrians as well. There were things they had to say that completely got washed out of the, the contemporary literature, and that it was worth um, worth paying attention to. I think that we could all use in the profession this attitude. We, we, um, this attitude should be more widespread, especially in the current intellectual climate where we're, we're all focused on the science. Well, one thing Austrian economics is, teaches you is the science is not a one, it's not a uniform thing. It, it's, it's a collaboration and it's a debate among people who have studied an issue. And I think that's another reason why I was drawn to the Austrian school, that it was hum more, more humble in some respects, but I also thought more powerful. Well, I think I've used up my time, so I will now open it up to hear what you people have to say, and thank you. Thank you so much for putting together all of these essays in this single volume. Uh, one of my strongest reactions to reading through them all in order like this was just regret for all the syllabi I've put together in the past that I didn't have this volume to assign because I think at the undergraduate and the graduate level, there are so many classes that the students would benefit from just how clearly you articulate and show how the ideas can be expanded on um, your, the way you articulate the socialist calculation debate, Hayek's critiques, some of the Austrian criticisms of welfare economics and the neoclassical paradigm. Um, it's just so incredibly clear. It makes I can't remember who said that ideas always need to be rearticulated and expanded upon newly in each generation. Um, and I'm I'm not just saying this to impress you, although I always do want to impress you because I look up to you. Um, but the I was also struck by how well these fit with the research that is being done still thirty to forty years from the you know the earliest of these articles today in the Hayek program. You're blending public choice with market process economics in a way that is very sophisticated. So I really do think this volume is a 21st century rearticulation of a lot of these ideas, even though many of the articles were written in the 80s and 90s. Um, and in your reflections, you spoke a lot about 
the role that uncertainty and discovery and changing paths um, kind of shaped your own intellectual journey. It struck me how consistent that is with the theory of society you put forth in this book. Um, and also it shows uh, just that, that that personal reflection shows how much can be accomplished by following the signs of what is interesting and productive and what makes you want to, uh, you know, throw a fit at your colleagues. Um, and you don't need to have a master plan and know exactly where it's going at the end. So kind of your own intellectual journey mirrors your theory of society in a really interesting way there. Um, I want to very briefly highlight just a few of the main um, themes and areas that Karen contributes to in this volume that, um, you know, particularly um, got my attention. The first is just her idea on how to, or her articulation of how to do economics. Um, the influence of Buchanan on Karen Vaughn's work really shows up in the essay, Does It Matter That Costs Are Subjective? And I think the Buchanan's theory of cost, I think Karen is exactly right when she says in here that most economists would agree with it in a superficial way, but they failed to fully appreciate its implications for the way that we do economics and also for the way we do policy. So you have this really wonderful discussion in there of how when we use money outlays as uh, a stand-in for welfare, that we are going to be kind of most wrong when we are entering the domain of policy, which by definition is a space where we think that the market system, uh, individual action without some kind of uh, group coming together to undertake some kind of collective action, we, we think just that individual market sphere is not working. Otherwise, we would not engage in any kind of collective action, even if it's you know a voluntary group. So then if we use these money outlays as a substitute, we're going to kind of be most wrong where we use that money substitute the most. So when we do our cost benefit analyses of policy and presume that that means that we know um, what's going to be the most efficient for a society, even if, if it involves the use of force to bring that outcome about. Um, so I think that's a really important insight. Um, learning and progress is a theme that comes out in a lot of these essays. Uh, I had to jot down one quote, which I just loved um, from your critique of welfare economics, which is that it seems more religious than a scientific exercise to identify what we want the outcome of people's actions to be in advance and then try to devise means to bring about our desired result. So this is an idea that you know, Hayek expresses, of course, but just that the way that you put across there how we can delude ourselves into thinking we're being the most scientific when we're actually being the least scientific, um, I think is something so important to kind of pick up on and carry through. And you, you know, you talk about, um, you know, where learning actually comes from, what actually is scientific in the sense of leading towards progress um, in the context of complexity theory, um, social reform is a third big theme. And don't worry, everybody, I'm only going to do four. Um, so you talk about uh, tension and nonviolent social reform uh, between the fact that people want to preserve some degree of stability in their society 
and the fact that in order to actually have progress and change, you need somebody to break the rules. So I think you actually used the phrase, you know, breaking the rules, um, which reminded me of James Scott's anarchist calisthenics, that we should all um, break a few rules every day if we want to move society forward. Um, as an aside, I think you did this in your career and in your academic entrepreneurship, as well as in your, your scholarship. Um, but I think this set of questions about where social reform comes from, how social evolution takes place, um, and kind of you end one of the, the Hayek Simplicit Economics essay with this question about how stable does an institutional structure need to be in order for the market to absorb change and adaptation? Um, I think that's such a critical question. And, and these ideas of how do we change society without breaking it, I think, are just have to be reconsidered with all of the new um, social reforms that are being called for and just needs to be reconsidered um, again in every generation. Um, and then finally, you bring up several times in the volume, the importance of making this moral case for freedom. Um, and especially when we're talking about people crafting rules that they're going to live by, their moral values, their ideologies are going to play a really significant role in determining what kind of rules they want to select for themselves. So I think this highlights the importance of interdisciplinary work, not being that economist who's just as an economist, but melding that very rational choice approach to thinking about collective action with a recognition of the, the significance of morality and ideology. Um, and I'll just wrap up by saying that in this essay, Can Democratic Society Reform Itself?, which I'm so happy to hear is award-winning because it was um, one of my favorites. Um, it, you conclude with this call for more attention to the moral justifications for freedom. And you say, this is a, a short quote, it does no favor to the ideal of freedom to pretend that freedom yields only winners and no losers. And it does no good to the cause of free markets to pretend that self-interested businessmen are altruists after all. And you go on to express this idea that we need to get comfortable with the fact that our societies are not going to be perfect and we have to have these difficult conversations about morality and how they relate to our political institutions. Um, so in addition to being incredibly useful as a, a teaching tool, which is where I started, I think there are also a lot of unanswered questions to be picked up on and to be able to move this research agenda forward. Um, so I'm so grateful to have all these essays together. You're absolutely right that they cohere into something that is um, bigger than the sum of their parts. Um, so I would just highly recommend it to everybody um, who's listening today. Uh, Karen, thank you for this uh, lovely collection. Uh, you had me right from the uh, from the dedication uh, for uh, a trip down memory lane. You you dedicated, it, of course, to to Gary, but also to Larry Moss, your co-author on one of the pieces. And I can remember when I was a a young academic uh, attending my first non uh, SEA or or AEA meeting was a meeting, I think it was by Liberty Fund, it might have been by the IHS, that was at the Homestead, which impressed me that, boy, these, these guys know how to throw good conferences. But Larry was there. And on the first night, he, of course, did some magic tricks. And I was just blown away. I thought, boy, this is a great group of people if this is the kind of stuff that they that they do at their conferences. And 
I remembered him fondly, and I'm so so glad to see his name again and to bring back that that memory for me. Uh, you're an historian of economics, just as am I. So my my comments are going to kind of uh, emphasize uh, those aspects of of your book. Uh, it's a it, as as has been demonstrated through the comments of other people. There's a lot of, of richness in here, but I'm I want to particularly point out for people who uh, who might be interested in the history of economics. Um, you start out the the book with a with a personal uh, account of how you became an Austrian economist, and what it what really struck me well a few things struck me in that account, but one of them is of course that you did a book on the on the history of uh, how how Austrian economics came to America, which if you can see over my shoulder is sitting on the on the. <laughs> Uh, in the bookcase there. And that was a 1994 book. And so there are people out there who are studying Austrian economics. Jamie said, look, uh, you students should look at this uh, collection of essays by Karen because they're relevant for the 21st century. Well, yeah, what we I think also need is an updating of that wonderful book that you wrote, because a lot of things have happened uh, in Austrian economics since then. And also, um, yeah, you you had uh, some personal reminiscences in there that I think could be uh, could be just multiplied at this point by all the things that have that have happened since then. I mean, you you don't mention in in your in your book about the contributions that you made to uh, building up the department at, at GMU, uh, bringing in people like Buchanan, and then Vernon Smith came in, and then of course the the you know subsequent developments with the Hayek Center with Pete and all the wonderful things that have been going on since then. This has been just a a, a, a huge yeah. You know, if there was an Austrian revival, this is more like an Austrian revolution, I think, in terms of of, of the way things have developed uh, uh, since then. Um, one of the parts that you uh, mentioned in your little audio autobiographical piece was how the how important the socialist calculation debate was for you in be in starting you on your road to becoming an Austrian economist and and you have a quote on in your introduction that I'll I'll quote here um, uh, you had just uh, gotten to grad school and uh, taken a micro theory class where the person who taught you general equilibrium said, you know, basically this shows that there's no difference between a socialist or, or a free market economy. And you said, uh, I just tucked that away for future reference. Learning about economic calculation debate was a revelation. There really was something wrong, not only with socialist economics, possibly with e neoclassical economics as well. And, you know, I think that I don't know if it's true of everyone who's an Austrian, but certainly those who came to it through economics, I think. I just had a flash of self-recognition there. I think back to Hayek's, uh, uh, you know, movement away from being kind of a standard economist uh, to becoming a, a, a theorist, a theorist of the market process. That also happened uh, through the socialist calculation debate. And indeed, just think of Kirsner's wonderful piece where he said this really was when the Austrian group uh, no longer was just uh, part of the neo neoclassical revolution or marginalist revolution, but really broke off on their own, in their own direction. Uh, and of course it was, uh, yeah, it was true for Hayek. <laughs> I mean, the, the, this is what, this is what put him on his road. I was so glad you called yourself a puzzler because Hayek talked about himself as a puzzler too. So that was a, that was a lovely piece there. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, another quote that, that I liked very much. Um, and I'm going to tie this back to Hayek again, and I'm, I'm going to be self-indulgent and tie it tie it to myself as, as well. You, you talked about how after 
years and years of studying Austrian economics, you realize that you could no longer teach intermediate micro with a clear conscience because I ceased to find the identification of equilibrium conditions to be a useful means of understanding market order. And that's when you truly understood that you've become an Austrian economist. Well, you know, I, I, I think um, uh, I, I have just you know, uh, published this with Hans-Jörg Klausinger, a uh, biography of Hayek. So Hayek, after having his, his insights in, in, in that 1937 piece, Economics and Knowledge, uh, is teaching at the London School of Economics and the war starts and, and it evacuates to, uh, to Cambridge. And he had to take over Lionel Robbins, essentially his microeconomic theory class. So there you've got Hayek teaching, teaching the stuff that, you're, <laughs> that you had that reaction to. And it's funny because you, I, I can sense that he's having the same sort of reaction that you had because before each uh, term, he starts out with a long methodological uh, a statement of you know, what the problems are with this. Like, okay, so this is kind of the economic calculus here and it's useful, but boy, it really doesn't get us to the process stuff. And it's, it's just, it's, it's the same sort of disquiet that you had. And I, what, was, what was funny for me, just my personal anecdote, was that I taught intermediate price theory for a long time at UNC Greensboro. And I also, <laughs> I would get them about halfway through the course, and then I'd just say, let's have a methodological interlude here and talk about what this stuff actually means, okay? So it's a formal theory, but really what, what it's trying to describe is all the stuff that the Austrians were so good at describing in terms of market as a process that, that these equilibrium models just weren't doing. So um, anyway, I wanted to point out that there was just a number of pieces that could be used in your book. So... What I'm, what I'm thinking is there's a student or maybe 10 of them out there who are now going to start on a project writing the history of Austrian economics in America, uh, let's say from 1974 onwards, so South Royalton onwards. So I would say to these people, start with Karen's book, <laughs> not only the one that she wrote there, but the one that, that we're talking about today. Uh, look at the introduction that she has written because it talks about her own personal journey, uh, but also consult... Uh, for example, that, that, that first uh, piece on socialist calculation, which was uh, you know, written in 1980, so well before when a number of other people had, had started to, to write about it, uh, move on to, and I'll just say as an aside, I, I, have, great, I have great respect, obviously, for, for all of the work that the Public Choice Group has done. Victor, you know, don't take this the wrong way. But with Buchanan, I always found him really hard to read. I couldn't understand him. And I struggled with cost and choice. And I was so happy to read Karen's wonderful piece, the second, the second piece in this volume, where you kind of just go through and say, okay, what does it mean if, if we talk about costs, of, costs as being subjective? That was so illuminating because it, it, I struggled, I, I have to say, uh, with, with the LSE lectures, et cetera. And, and this just really was very helpful. So that's just an aside from the historical uh, element. But um, the reprise of the, of the Kersner-Lachman debates, you mentioned how important that was at, at George Mason in the, uh, uh, in the 80s, 90s. Uh, I went to NYU in 1981-82. That was what all of the focus was, really, in, in the Austrian seminar that year. That, was, that just kept coming up over and over again. So it certainly was a, a live issue. People were struggling with it just like, like you did as well. Um, I'd just point out that the Mangarian uh, roots of the Austrian revival, I believe 
that you presented that first as a paper at the at the Duke conference when with the acquisition of the Manger papers. And I was there. I was actually I, they invited me over from UNCG to to direct the conference because I think I was the only person in the area that knew anything about <laughs> and I knew very little about the Austrians. And so they they wanted me to to help out with that. So that was a that was a a, a key moment. And uh, I, I'd also just say that for that historian who's, who's going through this, when, when uh, uh, Karen describes her discovery of how Hayek's theory of the market order uh, is, uh, goes, uh, can be reconstructed uh, and perhaps uh, uh, given uh, more, more focus, through the study of complex adaptive systems. This was stuff that was going on in the late 90s. And I think, Karen, you organized a, a wonderful um, Liberty Fund. I think it was in Georgetown. So this is where Hayek's things about memory are, are not always so useful, <laughs> not, not always so accurate. Uh, but we, it certainly we could, we could check it out. But I think Vernon Smith was there. And there was a lot of discussion about, about uh, complexity theory. Now, I might have that bit wrong. Maybe okay, she's shaking her head, so maybe that's maybe that's not right. But I do remember it was in the late '90s that you started talking about that, and I certainly uh, referenced it in in Hayek's Challenge, which was published in 2004. But the work was done earlier, and I referenced that that piece that you have in there, where Brian Arthur says, "Yeah, people people tell me all I'm doing is uh, is is Austrian economics here." So listen, thank you so much for your book. Uh, sorry for becoming a, a, a standard historian of e economics here, but that's that's what I do. And uh, it's also it's great to see you again. So my comments uh, have been motivated by the following statement in Karen's introduction. I quote: "I still do not particularly like the label Austrian. I would prefer Austrians highlight." the substantive core of the tradition, such as market process economics, rather than their ancestry. This statement, I posit, actually hides two roles in which Karen has been active, namely, on the one side, her role as a social entrepreneur, and on the other side, her role as a researcher and a paradigm builder. In spite of her expressed reservations about the label Austrian economics, it was, after all, Karen who initiated the creation of the Austrian Economics Society. As then president of the Southern Economic Association, she wrote in February 1995 a letter, which I recently found again in my files, in which she explained to her dear friends of Austrian economics the pragmatic advantages of forming a society under the Austrian label. Apparently, as a social entrepreneur, she readily embraced that label. Reservations about the label Austrian economics she harbored, I presume, in her role as a researcher and paradigm builder. In this role, she preferred the label market process economics as a more conducive heading for a research program that aims at elaborating a substantive theoretical paradigm. <clears throat> and this preference she revealed when, again in her entrepreneurial role, she founded with Richie Fink, the Center for the Study of Market Processes at GMU, avoiding the Austrian label. 
For the project of developing a theoretical research program, the two labels do indeed make a difference, both internally with regard to the relations among scholars who consider themselves working in the Austrian tradition and externally with regard to the attitude towards contributions from non-Austrians. The label Austrian economics tends to focus attention on one's specific identity as Austrian, encouraging internally disputes about who represents the truly authentic Austrian ancestry and externally an emphasis on what separates one's own approach from other variants of economics. By contrast, choosing the label market process economics as heading for one's research efforts focuses attention on the search for contributions that can help to arrive at a better understanding explanation of market processes. Internally, with regard to contributions within the Austrian community, the interest is not in judging them against the ancestry criterion, but in terms of how helpful they are in advancing the explanatory project. In the same spirit, externally, the attitude towards contributions from non-Austrian economists is not one of drawing demarcation lines, but one of looking for allies whose insights can help to advance one's own explanatory ambitions. While Karen's initial Austrian socialization was, as she notes, in Randian and Rothbardian libertarianism, over time she came to conclude that a Mises-Rosbard-type praxeological a priorism did not provide the most promising foundation for a research program that aims at, as she puts it, a more real-world-oriented market process theory, one that builds ch change via human learning and discovery into its positive heuristic. A promising foundation she found in the main message of Karl Menger's original contribution, followed up particularly by uh, Hayek, namely the message that markets are about knowledge and change, processes of trial and error. The particular merit of Karen's contribution I see in how she points out a line of inquiry that naturally unfolds once due attention is paid to the centrality of the knowledge problem for the study of market processes, that is, to the fact that the agents propelling these processes acquire knowledge as time passes and adapt their strategies to changing en environmental contingencies. Explaining real-world market processes, Karen stresses, require one to invoke theories about human learning and about how the intended and unintended effects of human action shape the socio-cultural framework within which markets operate. The rem <coughs> remainder of my comment, I shall seek to summarize the line of inquiry that Karen suggests. Starting with the knowledge problem at the individual level, she elaborates, I quote, <clears throat> Taking time seriously means incorporating human learning into all our accounts of human action. Human learning is fundamental to any account of market processes. 
the unraveling of the implications of the knowledge problem, both to people's intentional choice and to the unintended consequences of human action then become the main task of economics. So far, Kant's words. <clears throat> Since knowledge-creating processes in general, both at the individual as well as the, at the societal level, operate by trial and error, it is as a matter of course for Karen to conclude that, again, I quote, an evolutionary framework is the most congenial setting for an Austrian theory of market process. An evolutionary framework, she posits, provides an instructive outlook at the role of habits, routines, and recurring strategies, and allows us to explore the origins and nature of institutions in good Mengerian and Hayekian fashion. Again, quote. And so she notes, it is the natural course of, Austrian, of the Austrian argument to examine human action within institutional structure. Examining the institutional framework within which human beings operate becomes an, in, uh, an integral, integral part of the research program of an Austrian market process economics. Again, in Karen's words, a full appreciation of the processual nature of, the, of markets implies an investigation of the impact of alternative structures of property and contract on market activity and the relationship between constitutional constraints on government and economic performance, two projects which are already underway in the law and economics and the constitutional political economy literature. The just quoted statement illustrates the initially noted attitude of an Austrian economics conceived as a market process economics to seek to incorporate insights from other economic branches rather than insisting on what separates it from them. It also indicates that for Karen, a market process economics in studying the effects of alternative institutional frameworks must also take account of the fact that the latter are shaped not only by spontaneous evolutionary forces, but also by deliberate political choices. In other words, an Austrian market process economics naturally extends into the study of political process with a particular focus, as Karen emphasizes, on time and process, the knowledge problem, and on the role of learning and error correction in the realm of politics. As a major difference that in this regards sets political processes apart from market processes, Karen stresses that, I quote, while there are plenty of political entrepreneurs willing to offer their political proposals, I insert this, there is no effective testing process in politics to weed out error comparable to the competition in markets. As to the need for a market process economics to also include a theoretical account of political processes, I want to, no <coughs> I want to note in concluding my comment that, in <coughs> that it was again Karen in her role as a social entrepreneur who orchestrated the Public Choice Center's move from the EPI to George Mason University. I recall that in my time at, <coughs> at that center, the late Charles Rowley 
sought to initiate a research collaboration between the market process and the public choice center, aimed at integrating the study of market processes and the study of political processes under one theoretical umbrella. Whether or not Karen had hoped for such collaboration, when she worked to get the Public Choice Center to move to GMU, it would certainly have been in line with her vision of an appropriate Austrian research program. Regretfully, Rowley's initiative did not come to fruition, a chance missed. So thank you. I'm kind of overwhelmed with the, you know, with the praise I've been receiving. I'm not used to that here, but, but I appreciate all of your comments. Jamie, uh, you, you just made me feel like I'm a whole lot smarter than I ever thought I was. You know, it was so sweet of you to say all those great things. And you helped me to remember, you know, in ways that I hadn't, you know, remembered you know some of the some of the impetus to some of these articles. So um, I, I'm glad you could, you're going to be able to use it. Um, and I, I really I appreciate the work you have done with Pete and the uh, PPE program. I mean I, that's another thing I'm kind of overwhelmed by how how it has blossomed first under Pete's direction and then the, the good people he has with him. Um, I, despite all of my uh, my statements to the contrary, I'm kind of a pessimist about the future often. <laughs> and I really didn't see it developing that way. And I'm so glad it did because I think um, you have, it needs to be done. You know, those voices need to be heard and they need to get out there. <laughs> um, uh, Bruce, I'm so glad you didn't, understand cost and choice. You know how long it took me, <laughs> how many times I had to read that? And that was a case I literally did not know the answer to my question before I sat down to start writing that paper. It, I did it because it was the only way I could figure out what Buchanan was, was talking about. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad to hear you also started to feel like you were a fraud teaching conventional micro theory. <laughs> I used to spend so much time as the years went on showing the exceptions and saying, well, they say this, but what's re what's it really like that? I thought I was just confusing the students, so I stopped. <clears throat> um, Victor, that's the first I heard that Charles Rowley wanted to develop that project. Uh, the project would have been outstanding I'm not sure Rowley would have been the one to, to lead it, but I think in a way that's evolving, isn't it? I mean, through Dick Wagner. I mean, he's, he's trying to work, as, as I understand it, the, the looking at the interaction of the political institutions and the market and, and market institutions. Um, I also want to say, I'm glad you found that letter because in a way, the the society was something of a compromise. When I wrote that letter, I invited people not only you know dyed in the wool Mississippi and Austrians, but fellow travelers, people who were interested, as you said, in the research program rather than the the uh, um, genealogy. And <clears throat> um, when we went to 
to decide on a name for the society, I was pushing not to put Austrian in the name. I wanted a society for market processes or something. But Pete will remember why we went to Austrian, the, the name Austrian. First of all, there was the argument. And this, I think, was the other part of the quote that Victor read. Um, once labels are given, they're hard to avoid. They're hard to get rid of. And, and I think, Pete, you were the one who argued, even no matter what we call ourselves, everybody's going to say, oh, that's just the Austrians. And it was also when we we had the opportunity to edit the journal and the journal had a name, Austrian economics. So it was pragmatic. And you pointed out the, the you know, there's the ideal and then there's the pragmatic and sometimes you have to compromise. And frankly, that's the whole, that's the whole message of evolution, isn't it? I mean, there's no design to get it perfect where you work with what you have and you tinker with what you have. And what we had was a, was a brand name that was going to command uh, a certain audience. And I could only hope we would be able to branch out from there and invite other, and we, and that since I, you know, I have not been as, as involved in Austrian circles since my retirement, I, it's, I suspect that's happening, but I would surely like to have it happen more. So the focus again was more on the, the theoretical um, uh, apparatus. You found things in those papers, Jamie, that I had sort of not considered for a long time. But if, you know, some of the work now is looking at social contexts. You know, it's not just, and when we're beginning to realize, when I, when I started thinking about uh, recently, how would I explain markets to my grandkids? And believe me, they live in an environment where this would be a totally alien argument. And I was thinking, well, just to say, well, it's efficient. Well, for one thing, efficiency is not the is not the criteria we want to use anyway. Um, and so, and you have to take account of their moral uh, preconditions. I mean, most people don't just want to live in a wealthy society; they want to live in a wealthy society that's also a good society. I see that being brought into Austrian work. Um, but I do I do want to tell you that this little exchange I had with my oldest grandson, and we, we were arguing about some poli some economic policy several years ago. And he said, Grandma, how come you always support the economic argument? Something like that. How come you all that's always the first thing you think about? I was taken aback and I said, I said to him, well, partly because I was trained as an economist, but partly because that's the foundation of so much that's important in life. People can be, you know, if people are starving to death, if they can't feed their families, if they're thwarted in all of their actions be, to, to try to make their lives better, that's not going to be a good life. They, you have to have the basis in which they, basically what I was saying, you have to have the basis in economic freedom for the good things that can flow from society you know, to emerge. Well, we're, we're at the end of our time. Um, I did want to uh, just uh, say one last thing, which is Brian Author 
has an article that came out. Bruce mentioned him earlier about how when the complexity stuff first came around, Brian Author says, oh, it turns out that I'm I'm doing Austrian economics or whatever. Well, most recently, he has an article called Economics in Verbs versus Economics in Nouns. And his argument is, is that standard neoclassical economics is all in nouns and we need an economics in verbs. And, and that's about activity and everything like that. But one of the things that I think that we should all recognize, and Bruce mentioned this, is that uh, when you talk about economics and verbs, that means that you're going to have to actually have very good skills at writing. And the great economists were great writers, from Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill. And I actually do think, Karen, that Bruce captured something in the sense that you have an amazing ability to communicate complicated ideas in prose that make people understand very well. I think Dick Wagner, let me see if I have it here. He says in his blurb for your book, he says, reading this collection of essays um, uh, convinces me that Karen Vaughn must have the highest ratio of meaningful to total verbiage of any economist currently practicing the craft. And I think that's an extremely good uh uh, um, you know, endorsement. And, and I hope all the listeners, uh, you know, uh, contact Mercatus and get a copy of your book or uh, go to Amazon and, and read it carefully. But thank you to everyone for joining us today. Um, I think it's been a great, uh, you know, way to start the semester for us uh, and uh, a learning uh, about how to do Austrian economics and political economy. So thank you, Karen. And thank you, Victor. Bruce and Jamie. Well, thank you all. I have to say that again. This is this has been a real boost for me. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm, I'm as I said, I'm just kind of overwhelmed at the detail and attention you paid to my work, and I thank you so much for it. And it was again, and it was nice to see friendly faces, Victor, Bruce, Pete, Jamie. But anyway, thanks again for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.